Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Afternoon. Afternoon. Welcome. 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 My name is Andrew. I'm just, my name is Andrew Tran. I'm one of the uh, City Light uh, Elder candidates here. If it is your first time here, welcome to City Light North Adelaide. Uh, we're so pleased to have you here. Um, and if you're a regular, welcome to you too. Um, we are in our, believe it or not, 29th, 29th sermon for Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church to Change the World, our series in Acts. Um, this week, um, and after this week, uh, actually, including this week, we have two weeks of this, two more weeks of this. So by the time we finish, we've done 30 sermons. Um, and so uh, what we're going to do after this uh, is something we are calling our thematic series or topical series that we're calling the common sense for the silly season. That's essentially how do we, how do we deal with interesting social pressures and, uh, and situations around the silly season and Christmas time that's coming up. And hopefully after that, what we're going to do is we're going to get into Advent, which is our Christmas series. And in January, we're going to be doing our summer series. And then after that, hopefully we'll be back into the final stretch of Acts. Um, for those who, of you who aren't familiar with Acts, uh, or if this is your first time here listening to this, um, let's just do a real, real quick recap on what Acts is. Uh, Acts is written actually by a guy named Luke. Acts is actually a, a part of a two-book series. Uh, Luke was the, the guy who wrote the, 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 the Gospel Luke, and then that was the prequel, and this is the sequel, right? He wrote Acts as well. And he wrote Luke and Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Uh, so that uh, he wrote it for a guy named Theophilus, and so so that he would have certainty about the things that the things that he would have been taught about, which is the gospel, um, and by extension for us readers who read it, that, that we would have that same confidence and certainty about the gospel as well. If you've been with us, you would have seen over the last. Um, over the last year or so that we've been going through this book, we would have seen the gospel go out from uh, a little, the little East, in, the, in the Middle East, the little, uh, a little Jewish village, all the way out to Judea and Samaria. And in the recent weeks that we've been going through this, it's going out to the ends of the earth. Uh, when we read our, when Kim read our passage today, um, she was uh, talking about the end bit of uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Um, but this is only a small part of Paul's life. It's actually a really small part of church history altogether. The last few weeks that we've been covering, uh, we've been covering mostly of Paul's shenanigans, his first and second missionary journey. Um, his first missionary journey was, if we have a map here, uh, was went through Cyprus, Antioch, uh, Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, Lustra, and Derby. And his second missionary journey went from Iconium, Lystra, Antioch and Pisidia, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and last week we visited Athens. And this now leads to the next stop in his journey, which is Corinth. Now, if you're thinking, like, man, we've been, we've been reading this passage, we read this passage today, and this sounds really similar to our previous weeks. It sounds really similar because as Paul was doing more traveling, he's doing more preaching, he's getting more rejected more, he's, getting, he's doing more conversions. Uh, it's a lot more the same, right? And you're not wrong. It is a lot more the same, really. Um, so you might be thinking, what is the point of this passage today? And, or you might be thinking, perhaps, off the, off the bat of Mark's message last week, Mark encouraged us to engage with our friends with, with the gospel. And you might be thinking, man, I don't think I, I can do that. 
If you're thinking any of these two things, my hope is that today that God will really help us with, with that. Uh, so my big idea for today, um, it's not really revolutionary at all, it's a note taker, this is my big idea for today, that no matter the circumstances, God uses his people to spread the gospel. Super revolutionary, right? If you've been a Christian for a while, this is not new news to you at all. No matter the circumstances, God uses his people to spread the gospel. That's the truth I want us to really think about tonight. And I think Luke explores this idea in three ways. Primarily, he looks uh, at this through Paul's faithful perseverance. But I think he also looks at it through Apollos' Christ-centered confidence. And then undergirding all of these actions of these people is, the, is God's divine providence. So we're going to look at these kind of three things tonight. And my hope and prayer is that you not be simply encouraged by tonight's message, but I, I, my hope and prayer is that you be confident in the gospel, that you have confidence and uh, great hope in Christ, that you are affirmed in your calling as a disciple, and that you are inspired to actively participate in the mission that God has for us. Sound good? Great. Nodding heads? Great. We're on it. Um, let's pray and see what the word has for us. Eh? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the words that Luke has written for us so that we may be confident of your gospel that has gone out and is, is unstoppable. Pray, Lord, that you help us see what you want us to see. Spirit, move in us. Help us to know what it looks like to uh, be people that spread your word. Uh, help us not to be just hearers of the words, but doers of the word. I pray that tonight, Lord Father, if anyone here does not know you, I pray that you soften their hearts, you open the, their eyes to the reality of you, and I pray that you plant a seed of regeneration in their heart. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation on my behalf be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Cool. So let's look at Paul's faithful perseverance. Let's look at Paul's faithful perseverance. We've seen the gospel go out so far. It's been, quite, it's been literally unstoppable. You can't stop it. You can't pin it down. You can't squeeze it out. You can't suppress it. You can't exterminate it. It is unstoppable. But what that does not mean is that it is not coming against resistance. In fact, it is hitting resistance all the time. If the gospel, however, is going to go out through God's people, no matter the circumstance, it means that God's people must persevere against all barriers, against all trials, against all distractions to the gospel, right? Now, aside from our Acts series, whenever I think of perseverance, my first inclination is Paul. I always just think Paul. And I think that's not because Paul is the elite guy in the Bible. No, Jesus is the elite dude in the Bible. But I think Paul because we have such detailed accounts of his sufferings and trials. And we also have such, uh, we also see the degree at which he persevered in all his circumstances. God used Paul's faithfulness, his perseverance, through all manner of circumstances to spread the gospel. And we see this ultra clearly tonight in our passage. Let's read verses 1 to 3. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because, of he, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, from reading this, you might be thinking, Paul's traveling Europe. When we think traveling Europe, we think holidays, right? This is, I'm in this really annoying life stage, that young professional life stage where my Instagram and my, I'm so glad that winter is over because during winter, my Instagram and my Facebook feed is full of all my friends who's going to Europe. <laughs> they always talk about their upcoming Euro trips. It makes me super envious. This is what we think about traveling Europe is like. We think about jet setting, having fun, beaches in Greece, living my best life now, hashtag influencer life, hashtag Mr. Worldwide. We think of these things, right? And on casual reading, do you think we see, we see Paul, he's traveling a lot, he's done a couple of missionary journeys. We think, oh, he had money to travel around, right? He must have had money to travel around. And yes, he, he would have, but he's not balling it up. He's not, he's not super rich. But you might be thinking about, if, if I traveled you, I've, I've traveled you, I had a bad time. Um, and there, you can have bad times in Europe, for example. Uh, a common thing I've seen on Facebook is uh, those videos where they say, like, uh, watch out for these ATMs because you will get scammed by these ATMs in Europe, right? But I think getting scammed by an ATM in Europe, it, it is a bad time, but there's nothing compared to getting stoned and then thrown out of town because they thought you were dead. No one's going to sign up for that trip. No one's going to sign up for that trip. And Paul was a church-planting machine. He didn't have endless amounts of money. And we see here that he worked. He worked. I doubt that he had money for luxurious five-star accommodation or flying around his private G6. But the reason why he worked in Corinth, we know this in 1 Corinthians 9, we know that he didn't want to take money from the churches there. He wanted to give the gospel free of charge. Paul gave up his rights to his wage from the churches because he didn't want to take anything from the churches because he didn't want any hindrances to the gospel. Paul was so gripped by the gospel. He was so gripped by the love of Jesus. He wanted to share that. He, that he persevered economically and financially. But this is not the only way Paul persevered. Verses 4 to 6 say this. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. As per Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue. Why? To reason. Now, we've seen this word reason before. Mark went through this last week with us. And reason means to patiently persuade. Now, if you don't know, if I do what for our living. I, I'm a physio. I'm patiently persuading all my, my clients all the time, <laughs> especially when they come in and they say, Andrew, I think I've done this. I've done uh, like an L5S1, like in the L45 disbulge. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's, let's figure this out. How'd you find this out? Okay, Dr. Google, okay, but you're probably wrong. <laughs> Straight up, you're probably wrong. And I ask a few questions and let's make sure that this thing is, this is actually the thing it is, right? It turns out it's not this thing. And, and we, we keep talking, we keep talking. And this, hap- this, is, this is a general story. I've, this has happened multiple times, though. 
um, we keep talking, and they're like, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, yeah, nah, nah, but I think it's this thing here. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm spending time, I'm laboring, I go over time by 15 minutes, and I have, a I have half an hour appointments. If you go 15 minutes over, you're stacked for the day. And it gets, to be honest, it gets pretty annoying. <laughs> I don't know how Paul did it. To patiently persuade, day in and day out. And he doesn't just do it one Sabbath. Not two. He does it, what? Every Sabbath. Every Sabbath he is in there trying to reason, to patiently persuade with the Jews and the Greeks. Paul was persevering with sharing the good news with those who didn't know Jesus. Up to the point where Luke mentions that old mate Silas and Timothy rock up, and what does he do? Paul is occupied with the word. I don't know how long Paul was doing this for, but eventually the Jews oppose him and they revile against him. We know that Paul spent time wrestling with audiences where there was interest and, there was, and response. But here he faced hostile opposition. You can understand Paul's response here. Can you imagine getting stoned, like actually throwing stones at, being kicked out of town, on the run, being knocked back constantly, and you've persevered with this group of people and all for them to oppose you and revile you. And Paul's literally saying here, I've done all I can. I've been faithful. I've persevered. I'm going to the Gentiles, bro. They might listen. Imagine being the builder of being knocked back after knocked back after knocked back. I don't think it was an unfair decision considering the circumstances, but when do you throw the towel in? But crazily, the thing with Paul is that he doesn't stop preaching the gospel. He says, I'm going to preach to someone who's going to listen. And the next few verses, is like, it's like as if Paul was the ultimate like, first Christian troll. It says this in verse 7 to 9. He says this, uh, Luke says this, And he's, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was, was next door, next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Paul's like, oh, you're not going to believe? Let's go next door. Sweet. And then, Paul, and then Crispus, the guy who runs the synagogue, the synagogue that the Jews go to, gets saved. It's uncanny. It's ironic. So, despite opposition, despite setback, despite frustration, despite being downcast, despite feeling rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, he continues to preach the word. And by God's grace, people get saved. If Paul didn't persevere, we don't know how the word would have got to them, to the Corinthians. We don't know how they would have been saved. But you know what? Paul did persevere. And God used Paul's preaching to reach the lost. I wonder what Paul was feeling at this time. You think about it. He's been on the road, as I said before, he's been on the run for several years in a row now. He's been rejected. And if we know that if you common, that we know that rejection is a common reaction to the gospel, right? But when you get rejection after rejection after rejection, doesn't that become disheartening? 
it can become very disheartening, it can become very discouraging, it can be very demotivating. We don't know the full extent of Paul's emotional and psychological state at this time, but in the midst of, this, of his perseverance, God comes in, God comes to Paul in a dream. And verses 9 to 11 says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Like Mark mentioned last week, Paul asked for boldness. When he, he, he asked for, when he prayed, he asked for people to pray for him, he asked for boldness. He pr- asked for courage to persevere. And here you have God sweetly coming in and reminding him that he is with him, that God is with him. And what happens? Paul perseveres as a result. He continues to persevere Paul has no reason to be afraid. He has no reason to go on, uh, to, he has re- but he has reason to go on speaking and he has reason not to be silent. Why? Because God is with him. He's so encouraged and compelled that he stays another 18 months in Corinth. This language here of do not be afraid, I am with you, is huge. Don't underestimate what, what this means. It's used all over the Old Testament in Exodus, just Joshua, Isaiah, Jeremiah. That's just to name a few. And God uses these words when he's addressing a servant who's serving him. And here is no, no doubt the same. God uses these words. These words, do not be afraid. I am with you. He uses those words to galvanize Paul's resolve. And Paul was going to need it because the Jews won't have it at all. Verses 12 to 16 read this. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews... I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he, and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. I'm not sure why Luke goes into so much detail telling us about this episode with the Jews and Gallio and Paul. I don't know, it wasn't the first time Paul had faced authorities, right? But what we do see here is that the Jews are pretty cheesed off. Can you imagine Paul being dragged in front of Gallio, made to answer questions? The Jews really, really want to get rid of him. I think Luke puts, puts this in to show us how serious the Jews opposed and reviled Paul. But regardless of being dragged out on his face to face persecution, look what happens next. Verses 18 19 say this After this, Paul stayed many days longer 
and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. In synchrony, he said he had cut his hair, and for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and what? He reasoned with the Jews. Two things happen after he gets told, he, gets, he faces Gallio. He, one, continues to persist and stays there many days longer. And then what happens? He cuts his hair. Paul cuts his hair. What does that mean? What, what is Paul do? Well, Paul does this because he's giving thanks to God for blessing him and for, for God's, he's thanking God for having his hand over Corinth. And does this probably in a response to God helping him persevere. Paul recognizes where his perseverance comes from. And then very next verse, Paul is back at it again. Paul is back at it again. Dang, Paul, you're always with the Jews reasoning with them. Why are you doing this? Haven't you learned your lesson? He's back at it again at the synagogue converting the Jews. You couldn't stop him. And when Paul was done with Ephesus, he goes home. Now you might be thinking there, finally, he's done, right? Finally. You can just chill out, we can relax. If you've been away for like two years consecutively and before that another two years, it'd be nice to stay at home for a while, right? Just to chill out. It'd be nice to just eat some of mum's food, like Jack was saying previously in another sermon, or it'd be nice to just catch up with friends, have that nice B3 coffee. But... What does he do? Not Paul. Paul doesn't just stay at home. Verse 22 to 23 says this. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, which is his home. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. (laughs) Paul finishes his second missionary journey, goes home, and then he starts his third missionary journey. Paul just won't stop. Just Paul can't stop. Paul is a church-planting, disciple-making machine. In a matter of 23 verses, Luke here in Acts has rapid-fired, conveyed to us 18 months of events of what happened to Paul. God used Paul's faithful perseverance to spread the gospel far and wide and have huge impact, huge impact that cannot be understated. Despite the odds, despite the opposition, despite the weariness, despite the tiredness, by God's grace, Paul carried on. And for some of us, when we hear this, we just hear of, we just hear of Paul's efforts. We get tired listening to it. I don't blame you. I feel the same way. Let alone trying to do a fraction of what Paul did. But let me be clear here. Luke isn't saying, Luke isn't saying, check out Paul, see how many boss moves he made, be like him. That's not what Luke is saying at all. Paul was so gripped by the grace of God that he persevered through everything. And as naturally as humans, or as for us, us reading this, we want to compare. Especially as us A-type people, we're very prone to this trap, myself included. But each one of us, let me remind you, each one of us has a, marked, uh, has a race marked out for us. Each race is going to be different. But each race is going to require endurance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. 
The thing is, Jesus promised his followers that we would have trouble in this world. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the loss, for the sake of the glory of God, God allows us to persevere through trouble, to show the world the thing that we hold on to closest when we go through these things, and that is chiefly Jesus. The Christian life is not meant to be easy, friends. The Christian life is not meant to be easy. If it was, I'd be making a lot of money right now. Sharing the gospel will face opposition. And don't hear me say that, okay, if sharing the gospel is going to make me opposition, don't, I'm going to make it hard for myself. Don't, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that you should go out and antagonize people. Yes, the gospel is inherently offensive in of itself, but we do not need to add offense to the gospel, especially how we go about sharing it. Instead, what should we do? Like Paul, we should persevere in sacrificially giving up our rights so that there will be no hindrances to the gospel. Like Paul, we should persevere when we reason and patiently persuade people to see the truth that will set them free. Like Paul, we should persevere that because there are people who will be saved, not might be saved, but will be saved. Like Paul, we should persevere because we know that God is with us. We know that God is with us. His spirit dwells within us and he works in and through us. God doesn't call us to be successful witnesses. God calls us to be faithful witnesses. Faithful witnesses. Some of us, I know, we feel weary, we feel tired of this Christian life. We've tried telling people about Jesus. We've not much success at all. It can be very discouraging. I understand that. Absolutely. We've prayed for years and years and years for people to know Jesus, and we wonder why God isn't answering our prayers. We spend hours and hours reading the word with someone or discipling people in our discipleship groups, inputting into their lives, giving up of our time and resources and our love, and no gospel fruit. We ask, why, God? But ultimately, God calls us to be faithful. He doesn't call for us to succeed. And that actually is very relieving for us. That's actually very good news for us because we have no pressure to perform. Our worthiness is found ultimately in the finished work of Christ, friends, Therefore, since there is no fear, from, fear of, from failure, we are free to persevere and try as hard as we can. Since Christ is sufficient and he is with us, and since we count everything else as loss, the gospel compels us to persist and live lives open handily to the glory of God and his will in all circumstances. No matter the circumstances, God can and will use us to spread his kingdom. Perseverance in adversity isn't a a necessity for faith. It doesn't make you a Christian. Perseverance in adversity doesn't make you a Christian or it doesn't save you. But rather, perseverance in adversity is an outworking of genuine faith. This is how God uses his people to spread his gospel. He is with them. He is with us. 
and he is helping us to faithfully persevere. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not you, Andrew. I don't know enough. I don't feel very confident. I can't share my faith. And I can, that's a very understandable sentiment, especially in our secular culture that is growing more hostile towards Christianity. I think, though, if we continue unpacking this text, we'll see that knowledge is not necessarily a limiting factor for us. In verses 24 to 25, it says this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught and accurately, taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. What? <laughs> Apollos only knew the baptism of John, and he was accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus? This leads to my second point. We're not too, we're not too far from there finishing. Uh, this is my second point. Apollos' Christ-centered confidence. Here you have a guy from Egypt, from the, from, the, from the area of Alexandria. It's on the opposite side of the Mediterranean to Ephesus. He's Jewish and he's competent in the scriptures and speaking accurately to only what he knew. Apollos is speaking from the things about, he's speaking of Jesus Christ from the things that he knew in the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures confidently enough, he knew what scriptures he knew confidently enough to know that he, to be fervent in spirit. He searched the scriptures and the scriptures pointed to Jesus and he was confident in the man of Jesus. Apollos' hope was, and confidence was in Jesus and not his own knowledge of scripture. There's a very distinct difference here, very subtle but very distinct. There's a little caveat here. It's not to say that knowledge is not important. Don't hear me say that. Don't, don't hear me saying that knowledge is not important. It is definitely important. We want to be communing not just, the, not just part of the truth, but we want, to be, we want to have a good handle on all of the truth, right? Knowing truth, knowing the truth about God, builds our confidence in God's character. So don't let me... I'm not saying don't read your Bible. But there are key, there are key things that we need to know when we want to see people get saved. In verses 26 to 28, it says this, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he had powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. God used Apollos mightily, Though at one point in his life, he didn't even know about the resurrection. The resurrection is kind of important to know. If you consider yourself Christian here, you probably know that Jesus lived and died and resurrected, right? You're doing better than Apollos. I want to bring up this next slide here. Um, this is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Has anyone heard of this? No? It's something out of psychology. Um, it's, in 1999, Kruger and Dunning did a study looking at the phenomenon of illusory uh, superiority in a study called Unskilled and Unaware of It. How difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to an inflated, inflated self-assessment. What that really means, this graph here, if on the left side you see level of confidence. 
And on the bottom there, you have actual knowledge or wisdom, right? So when this, this applies to people who just pick up skills or start learning something new, and you've seen this all over the place, right? When someone learns something new, they're like, I know everything, to the point where at the top there, they're super confident, but they, little, they, they know nothing. The top there is called the peak of Mount Stupid. And then as they find out more and more and more, they feel crushed because they go into the valley of despair because they realize they actually don't know much at all. This effect here is the basis of Australian Idol. Right? You see this. This is, why, this is where we get really bad singers who think they're the freshest things since sliced bread. They come up on stage or, or, or the audition room, and Simon Cowell's like, okay, do you think? And it's, you, you want to, you wanna, your, your ears bleed. <laughs> and then you have this weird thing where really, really good singers don't think they're actually that good at all and don't have great confidence, but they're actually really good. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that Apollos here was at the peak of Mount Stupid. Don't hear me say that. That could be potentially be the case. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make here with the Dunning-Kruger uh, effect is that you might have been a Christian for a while, but you don't feel very confident at all with your faith. You might be bombarded with so many questions, left, right, and center. What is what's predestination? What's the historicity of Christianity like? What's the textual criticism? All these questions. That might be the start of you being wise. That's a very good place to be. And don't worry, my iPhone Reminders app is full of so many questions. The thing is, God can still use you now, right now, even if you don't feel like you're ready for it. Know why? Because his grace is sufficient for you, and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And realistically, are we ever really ready? Are we ever really ready? Maybe you're on the opposite side of the scale and you're a bit more bashful, a bit more prideful, a bit more arrogant, and especially if you feel a sense of superiority with your faith. Now, we wouldn't admit that, but maybe some introspection might lead to some of that thinking, and it might lead to some of that revelation. And yes, God can still use you, but it might be a good time to check yourself <laughs> because you're probably not as smart as you think you are because last time I checked, your name is not Tim Keller. Apollos didn't know about the resurrection. Apollos didn't know about the resurrection. And as important and as critical as the resurrection is, his confidence was wrapped up not in his knowledge, but wrapped up in the Messiah. And that's where our confidence should be wrapped up in. By all means, please, 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 please read your Bibles and know the truth. Apollos knew his word really well, or at least the bit that he knew, and he argued from it. But don't derive your confidence or your pride from your knowledge. Derive your confidence from the finished work of Jesus. No matter how little our depth of knowledge is, since our confidence is in Christ, God can and will use us to spread his gospel. And the thing that undergirds all of this, our faithful perseverance, 
our Christ-centered confidence, the thing that undergirds all of that, is God's divine providence. We've looked, uh, if you look back at the entire text today, I would encourage you to do this at home. We don't have enough time tonight to, to do this, but I encourage you to read it again. Look at the sequence of events. Look at how perfectly orchestrated this was to achieve his purposes. God orchestrated it in this way. Priscilla and Aquila, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for Claudius commanding the Jews to leave Rome, they would have met Paul. They wouldn't have experienced Paul's life, his ministry, his teaching, his discipleship. They wouldn't have met or tra- travelled to Ephesus with Paul, and they wouldn't have got left behind before, but, but behind, behind by Paul. But they eventually met Apollos, and for Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila were just the right people that Apollos needed. Apollos was the dynamic, eloquent young gun. Knew a bit about Jesus, was confident about Jesus, but didn't have the full depth of Jesus. And here you have two, two, um, uh, a husband and a wife team who spent 18 months with Paul, learning from him. And what, guess what? They get to teach and disciple Apollos. And then in verse 27, it says this, the brothers encouraged him to, and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And what? When he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Apollos was given connections right from the get-go so that he would be effective for the kingdom. God used Apollos, the man from across the Mediterranean. It was, this is more than simply a case of right place, right time. We say good luck or good fortune. This is not that at all. We know that, we know that God rules and reigns and controls all things. And we know from Scripture, Apollos' impact on the Corinthian church. Paul commends Apollos as a fellow worker and brother in the Lord. Same team. He loves the guy. But I want to end our time tonight looking at the crux of our passage today. If you don't have your Bibles already open, look at verses 9 and 10. Now let's read this again. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul has been, he's been getting beaten up a lot lately, and God promises to be with him in verses 9 and 10. But he also promises for a, a period of time that no one will attack or harm him. And this is a big change for Paul. <laughs> Wait, God, what? No one's attacking me for 18 months? This is, this is kind of nice, bro. Thanks, man. <laughs> I'd love that. If I had an 18 months, like the time when no one was going to ridicule me for my faith, I'd go nuts for the kingdom, right? This is not saying that Paul will never get attacked again. In fact, in the very next verse, Jews attack. But what is the reason why God won't let people harm Paul here? He says this For I have many in this city who are my people. God determined that in order for his mission, God's mission, to be achieved in Corinth, God would not allow Paul to be harmed. God already knew that people were, there were people there who would respond to the gospel, and God was in charge of all the circumstances. God did whatever it was necessary, whatever was necessary to achieve the goal that he wanted. And at that moment in time, it meant that Paul, he wanted Paul not to be attacked. 
And what I want us to remember is that God will continue to do whatever is necessary to complete his mission here. God will achieve his mission, whatever the cost. God is not saying here that we will not face opposition. But God is with us. Some of us will face more trials than others, but God will equip us to participate in his mission and will do or set up the sequence of events that will allow us to participate to, to glory. We see God pay whatever the cost most clearly in the sending of his son Jesus. God is a is an all or nothing kind of guy. He he has put everything down on the table. And we see that in Jesus dying for our sins. We see that in order to satisfy his perfect justice, his holy wrath, it required a perfect sacrifice. So to save God's own people, the Father sent Jesus to come as a baby, to live a perfect life as a man, to die and experience separation from the Godhead, separation from perfection. This is a steep price to pay, a price that we could not pay on our own, even if we tried. God did whatever it took. But God, in his great love for us, He did this out of his glorious nature so that you and I, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved and be called called children of God. Jesus persevered for us so that we may know freedom from sin and from death and that we may know perfect love. This is the reason why we persevere. This This is the reason why we look at Jesus If you're a Christian tonight, know this, revel in this. Revel in God's sovereignty over our lives. Revel in his love for you. Revel that God did whatever it took to save us and that we have the opportunity to serve him well. Ask that God make this a reality in our hearts, not just something that we know in our heads, but something we live and breathe every day. Ask the God that that we will be compelled to live for him to participate in his kingdom work by sharing his good news, to give us confidence and boldness. Ask him to help us persevere, especially when we we know we want to but we can't. Ask God to help us to keep our eyes off of ourselves but keep it on Jesus. Ask God to help us trust him in his sovereignty and ask him to give us confidence. These are things I want us to do tonight and even in, in the week. And if you're not a Christian here tonight and you're thinking like, what, what do I, what's an offer tonight? Well, what is an offer is what your heart has been yearning for. God has done everything possible um, to, to reconcile you. All you need to do is just accept Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has been given to us. We, can't, we couldn't do anything to accept that. We, we couldn't do anything to work for that. And he's given you a living relationship. This is on the table for you tonight. At the end of the day, you, I'm more than happy to answer questions and stuff in the back about who this Jesus character is, but um, may I urge you to consider this. Consider Jesus, who God looked and saw you helpless and sent him for you.
And he's asking you to receive eternal life today. Let's pray together. And uh, Jesus, thank you for coming for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for the, your gospel that is unstoppable. Pray that tonight we don't just um, take this message and just put it in the back of our minds, but pray that you work this message into our hearts. For those, who have, uh, for those of us who have trusted you, uh, help us to revel in your love. Help us to put aside our preferences, to get out of our comfort zones. Motivate us by your love and your gospel. Lord, I pray that you build confidence in us, that help us trust you, help us to trust your divine sovereign plan. Help us to live a life untethered to the world here. Let's know the sufficiency of who you are. Spirit, I pray that you embolden us. You provide opportunities for us to share the news, the good news of Jesus. Prompt us. Father, we want to see your name be known across the city. But we pray that you help us do that and to persevere in hard times. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you, our family, our friends, our colleagues, people in North Adelaide here and the surrounding suburbs. Pray that we might be your light, that we may be able to love well and point them to the eternal joy that is found only in you. Help us to rest in the finished work of Jesus and use us mightily to spread your kingdom, Lord. Be with us, Lord Father. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.